All right, well, if you would, go ahead and take out your Bibles and have them ready. Uh, As promised at our last members' meeting, uh, this morning we are going to be taking a step away from our study of the book of Romans uh, in order to address the issue of church membership and to lay out a case for uh, church membership. Uh, We've done this uh, in a different way before, about five years ago, uh, in a series of sermons that we called Being the Body. Uh, We looked in some detail uh, at what the Bible says concerning the local church, and in particular we spent about five messages looking at what the Bible teaches uh, about the responsibilities and privileges uh, that come with church membership. Back then, uh, our focus was a little bit different than it will be this morning. Uh, Back then, we were dealing with the fact that we knew that so many in our community were church members, but they didn't understand what church membership was all about. Uh, What we were fighting against was this false notion that somehow being a member of a church, having your name on a roll is sufficient, and that actually being actively involved in a church was somehow optional. That having my name on a church roll meant that I was saved, that having my name on a church roll meant that I was okay with God, and that only those who wanted to be more spiritual were to be actively involved in a local church. So we fought against that notion, and we showed from the pages of Scripture how that is an unbiblical notion, and that churches ought not to function in that way. Uh, That's not the kind of in-depth study that we're going to be doing today. Rather, we're coming from a different angle. Um, Since 2007, when we had those messages, uh, I have learned more and more about certain churches uh, in our area who, uh, well, they don't practice church membership, and they actually actively teach against the principle of church membership. Uh, Whether intentionally or not, they have led some in our community uh, to begin to think of church membership as an unbiblical principle, even something that is unhelpful in local churches. Um, And then, of course, there are many others in our area who do have a low view of church membership, and honestly, they're just very comfortable not being an active member of a local church. So here's how I want to begin this morning. I want you to suppose that you had a friend, and this friend came to you with this question. Why should I join my local church? I already attend worship. I already fellowship with the church. I already show love and receive love from the people in the church. Why is it in any way necessary or good for me to join? How would you answer that question? I thought it might be good for us to revisit this subject. Now understand, because we're doing this in one sermon on a Sunday morning, we're not going to go in near the depth that we've gone at in, uh, in, in previous days. But what I am going to be doing is just drawing you to a number of passages of Scripture. So have your Bible ready. Here is our general outline for this morning's message. Two questions, okay? Is church membership biblical? That's question number one, and that's the one that's 
come about since 2007 that I feel like we need to address. Is church membership biblical? Do we see at least the roots of church membership taught in the pages of Scripture? And then question number two, if it is, what are the purposes of church membership? What does it actually accomplish? What are the purposes of church membership? So let's start with number one. Is church membership biblical? And let me say up front, there is no passage of Scripture in the Bible that uses the phrase church membership. So if you look in your concordance and you try and find the phrase church membership in your Bible, you, you won't find it. 1 Corinthians 12 does speak of the local church as a body with members. But of course, there Paul is using the word members to refer to various body parts that help the body to function well. Now, I do think that careful reflection on 1 Corinthians 12 will ultimately lead you to the conclusion that churches ought to have membership but being generous here, we'll acknowledge that members in that passage is referring to body parts, not official membership. Uh, even though the phrase church membership does not appear in the Bible, I would like to suggest that church membership is indeed taught in the Scriptures. Uh, at least the foundation for it is very well laid out, and I think the evidence points to even more uh, than that. So let me give you six biblical arguments, six biblical arguments for the practice of church membership. Okay? Number one is the Old Testament argument. The Old Testament argument. Uh, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament was foreshadowed by the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. So what do we find in the foreshadowing of the church in the Old Testament? Was there membership in ancient Israel? Were records kept of the people of God in Old Testament Israel? And the answer, of course, is yes. In fact, we have a book in our Old Testament called Numbers, of which a portion is devoted to declaring the number of people of Israel by their tribe and by their clan. Records were kept in the temple and were regularly updated in the temple of who belonged to each family of each clan of each tribe in the nation of Israel. To become an Israelite, a person had to take upon himself the conditions of God's covenant with Israel and males had to pass through the rite of circumcision. Covenant breakers would lose their citizenship, their citizenship in Israel, and would be either exiled or even killed, but in that way they would be removed from the body of Israel. So whether or not you were a member of God's Old Testament people, Israel, determined whether or not you were in the covenant that God had made with Israel. Uh, membership not only existed in ancient Israel, membership mattered. It was extremely important that you be counted among the people of God in the Old Testament because it determined whether you were in the covenant or out of the covenant. Now, based on that reality in the Old Testament, should we not expect something similar in the New Testament? True, the particulars have changed, but God himself does not change. 
and the principles that God values do not change. And I would suggest that the principle of membership that we see in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, among God's Old Testament people, gives us good reason to expect something similar in these New Testament days among God's New Covenant people, the church. So that's the Old Testament argument. Now please understand, I am not going to be able to give you every argument that would take many, many sermons. So this is just an overview of some of the arguments that I find to have the most weight to them. Number two, the Matthew 18 argument. The Matthew 18 argument. And here's where I want you to open up your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18, and let's look at this together. I know many of you are already familiar uh, with Matthew 18, the words of Jesus that are found there. Uh, We often think of this passage in connection to to church discipline. What I want us to do is look at what Jesus says in verse 17. So in the context of talking about how to deal with a member of the Christian community who has sinned, I want us to look at what Jesus says in verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So the context here is how to deal appropriately with a person who has sinned against you, a person who claims to be a follower of Christ, and yet a person who refuses to repent. And at a certain stage, you've brought the sin to the, to the person. You've said, look at what you've done. I'm urging you as a Christian brother or sister to repent. The person does not repent. You've brought two or three witnesses along with you, right? And you have brought with them uh, the, the charge, and the man still or woman still will not repent. And so Jesus says in that context, the sin is then to be brought before the entire church. But here's the question. Who is the church that the sin is to be brought before? The tenor of the whole passage up to verse 17 is that we are never to just air somebody else's dirty laundry out to the world. We are never to be quick in letting other people know the sins of others. The goal is to handle this difficult situation with as few people learning of the sin as possible. You want to protect the person's reputation until you get to the point where you absolutely cannot. You start out going to the sinner yourself. If he repents, nobody else need ever know. It was between you and him. Repentance has happened. Forgiveness has happened. Case closed. Keep on loving each other. That's it. If two or three come, but he repents, they're the only ones that need ever know. Repentance has happened, forgiveness has happened, continue loving one another, all is well. And so the whole tenor is about not just airing this out to anybody, right? It's keeping the number of people involved as few as possible. So when Jesus says in verse 17 that you get to the step of telling it to the church, I don't think he means just tell it to whoever shows up on Sunday. I don't think he means just tell it to anyone and everyone. Rather, it is only the church body, only those who make up that person's own local church family who are to then be brought in to the knowledge of this sin so that they can together urge the person to repent. However, 
how do you know who that local church family is if you don't have a practice of church membership? If there is no role, if there is no certain people who are actually a part of the church, then who are you to tell the sin to? Are you really going to just come on a Sunday morning and air it out to anyone who happens to be there, even those who probably have no relationship to this person at all, including maybe unbelievers who are present and may find it as a tasty bit of information to go share with the world. So Jesus says here that if this person still won't repent of his sin, think about this, if this person still won't repent after the whole church family has come around him and pled with him to repent, he says they're to treat this person as an unbeliever, as a Gentile or tax collector. Paul says it in this way in 1 Corinthians 5. Listen to this language from 1 Corinthians 5. Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Hear the kind of words Paul uses there. We are not to judge outsiders. It is only those inside the church who are to be subject to church discipline. But here's the question. How do you know if a person is inside the church? What determines these definitions of inside or outside? How can you remove a person from being inside the church if there is no membership role in the first place? Some people have suggested, well, what he really means is just you don't allow that person to come back to your worship anymore. But we know that isn't true. Because in Corinth, we read in chapter 14 that unbelievers were welcome in the worship service. In fact, we want unbelievers to be present in the worship service to hear the preaching of the gospel. So what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 5 is when you put this person outside from you, he's not saying that person can't come to church anymore. He's saying something different, something about inside and outside, something about membership. What does it mean to be removed if there is no membership to be lost or to be revoked? So that's the Matthew 18 argument, the church discipline argument. It goes a little bit differently this way. This is number three. Number three, this is the 1 Corinthians 14 argument. 1 Corinthians 14 argument. Feel free to uh, to turn there if you would like. 1 Corinthians 14. And the verse I have in mind in 1 Corinthians 14 is verse 40, which is the very last verse of the chapter. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul has been arguing that God's people should worship in an orderly manner. Uh, He says in verse 33 that our God is not a God of confusion. Our God is a God of peace. And then in verse 40, Paul draws this conclusion. But all things should be done decently and in order. And I would simply ask this question. How can a church have order in doing the things that God has called churches to do if there is no clear membership role that even distinguishes who the church is. Without a membership role, the church becomes an amorphous gathering of people 
with no clarity as to who actually is the church and who is not the church. With a membership role, there is clarity, there is specification, there is order. I do not believe that it is merely a coincidence that many of the churches that do not practice church membership also fail to keep certain commands that Christ has given for the local church to fulfill. That is, I don't think it should shock us that many of the churches that say church membership is unbiblical also often do not practice church discipline or do some of the other things that God calls them to do because they have no way of doing them without church membership. Uh, Argument number four. Number four. The 2 Corinthians 2 argument. The 2 Corinthians 2 argument. I think this one is one of the most convincing of all. Uh, Turn with me there. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In the context, Paul is talking about a Christian who was placed under church discipline in Corinth. He was removed from the church. And yet, by God's grace, this person repented and came back among the fold. And Paul now urges the Corinthians in that church to forgive this person for the sin that he committed, to bring him back into true restored fellowship. Look in verses 5 and 6. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 and 6. Now if anyone has caused pain... He has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. In other words, the punishment that this man received for his sin was sufficient. No more punishment needs to be given. Now that he's repented, Don't continue treating this person as an unbeliever. Don't stick your nose up towards this person. Don't refuse forgiveness towards this person. Let there only be love and mercy and compassion and eagerness to receive this person back into the fellowship. But notice those words. Punishment by the majority. In some way, the majority of the church in Corinth had issued a punishment upon this person, probably removing him from the membership of the church. Why do I say that? How can you have a majority without having a membership? How do you know what more than half of your church is if you do not know who your church is? Now, I suppose some think that Paul means simply the majority of those who happened to gather together when this issue was discussed. So whoever came to the meeting to discuss the issue of this person, the majority of those is who he has in mind. Does that sound just? And does that sound fair? If it's simply, we're going to call as a church a meeting, and we have no membership, we don't know who our church is, but we're going to call as a church a meeting to discuss brother so-and-so and their sin, and how we ought to respond to it, and just anyone can come, well, who has the right to vote in an issue like that? Can the person under church discipline bring all of his family and friends, people who have never attended church, perhaps, people who maybe don't even know the situation, people who maybe don't even care about Christ, can they come to the meeting? Can they vote? 
If your church doesn't have a set membership, how do you establish these things? How do you obey the commands of Christ in caring for the souls of people? As you can probably see, there is a huge connection in the New Testament between church membership and church discipline. And that's because church discipline is a means of grace that Jesus gives us for our good. We're to have security in knowing that if I ever start wandering away from Christ and I get involved in a blatant sin and I'm refusing to repent, I have brothers and sisters who love me enough that they will not let me wander off and get killed. They care for me. Like Jesus going after the one, leaving the 99. So I have church family who will come after me and they won't let me go without a word. They won't say, well, that's just his private business. I'm not going to be involved in that. Church discipline is an incredible gift for our security to know that I am loved and yet it completely falls apart. The church isn't practicing church membership. Number five, the 1 Timothy 5 argument. The 1 Timothy 5 argument. I want us to look in verses 9 through 13. Verses 9 through 13. Little widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Now, there's obviously a lot we could say about that text, but the main thing I want us to see is that the church in Ephesus, which is to whom Paul was sending this through Timothy, they clearly had a program for caring for the widows in their church. And notice that there was an order to this program for how they cared for widows in their church family. There was a role, right? Let them be enrolled. So there was clearly a membership role here for the widows that were going to receive care. There were also requirements, stipulations in order to qualify And I would just ask, if this was true, that the church in Ephesus cared enough about order that they had a role for the widows who were to be cared for, should we not expect something similar for the church as a whole? In fact, if we were to spend time in the book of Acts, wouldn't we see that the church in Jerusalem seemed to be keeping account of who was in the church and who was not? They they were able to track the growth of the church as it took place. We're told at several places in the book of Acts how many people were baptized into the church in Jerusalem. And I would suggest that if that was true for the very first local church that was ever established, we should think that that probably set a precedent for other local churches to keep account of these things. I'm not saying this argument's the strongest, but it is an argument, and I think it's important. Then number six, number six, one that's important to me as a pastor, the Hebrews 13 argument. The Hebrews 13 argument. So turn with me there. 
Hebrews 13, let's look together at verse 17. Hebrews 13 and verse 17. Here's what we read. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Throughout the New Testament epistles, we learn that pastors in a local church are to be overseers. They're to be watching over the souls of those entrusted to them by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn that pastors will one day give an account for those people whom they were responsible to shepherd. Pastors will stand before Christ and have to give an account for how they cared for the souls of each and every one of those entrusted to them. But the question comes, how does a pastor know who it is that he is responsible for if there is no membership role? Am I to give an account before Jesus Christ one day for every person who ever stepped foot in this church while I was here? Am I to give an account for the spiritual condition of all in the city of Rocky Mount? What are the limits? What is the definition of those people for whom I am to give an account before Christ? Some kind of distinction has to be made. Of course, God himself keeps a roll of those who are his, the Lamb's book of life. And I think that's an example for under-shepherds, for local churches to follow, that, that churches must have a role of who belong to that particular church so that the overseers know these are the ones entrusted to me by Christ for whom I am to especially devote myself in prayer and in ministry and preaching and in teaching. So there may even be others in the community who I am to love, who I am to minister to as I have opportunity, but I must never let ministry to those outside of the church take away the main responsibility I have to care for you who are a part of the church so that you will be blameless on the day that you are presented to Christ Jesus. And yet there's no way to distinguish who I'm responsible for apart from a membership role. So those are the six arguments that that I have. There are others, but I hope you're convinced. And I hope you see why I... Let me be clear here. Many of the churches that teach this, I'm not saying they're not Christians. I'm not saying that they don't believe the gospel. I don't want you to hear a a condemning tone here. Um, uh, They're brothers and sisters in Christ, many of them. Uh, I just believe that this is very dangerous and a very unwise path to follow to start saying that churches don't need membership anymore. Um, I think it takes us away from obedience to Christ, not towards obedience to Christ. And I realize that there's going to be a day when I'm dead and gone from this church, and I want this church to have deep in the the fiber of our being. This, This matters. We must never do away with this. So I hope you see why I thought it was that important. Now, real quickly, let me just give a couple of reasons why church membership is so important. And you've already seen the connection to church discipline, so I'm not going to go there, but that is an important reason. But let me mention two other reasons that I think church membership is very important in the life of a believer. Uh, The first is this. 
Church membership is an affirmation of faith. Church membership is an affirmation of faith. Think about this with me. See if this doesn't make sense to you. Um, I think this is very important. I think it's often misunderstood. Let me begin with this premise. Church membership is for Christians. Uh, That is, it is Christians, and, and only Christians, those who are following Christ, who are to be brought into the membership of a local church. Uh, This is very clear uh, as you go through the scriptures. Uh, First of all, there's the word church itself. The word church, ekklesia in the Greek, literally means those called out. And so inherent in the word church is the idea that churches are to be made up of the called out ones, those who have come out from the masses to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, We could look at the way the the, uh, apostles speak to local churches, and it's obvious that they expect that in addressing local churches, they're addressing Christians. So, for example, in the book of Romans, which we've been studying, at the very beginning of the letter, Paul says that he writes to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Or again, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. And so the apostles even anticipate, if I'm writing to a church, I'm writing to a body of Christians. So churches are to be made up of Christians. Um, Ephesians 2.8, Paul says things like this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. He anticipates that the people he's writing to are people who have been saved through faith. Right? Um, A third argument is that church discipline makes no sense unless church membership is only for Christians. That is, if church membership was for anybody, then what would it even mean to remove somebody from the church for not following Jesus if church membership is for people who don't follow Jesus? So that's obvious. And then number four, we should note from the book of Acts that it was those who were saved who were admitted into the church. So, for example, in Acts 2.41, we read, those who received his word and were baptized, I'm sorry, so those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added to what? Added to the church in Jerusalem. Acts 2.47, and the Lord added to their number day by day, who? Who was being added to the church day by day? Those who were being saved. And so, of course, this makes perfect sense. I mean, if if the purpose of the church is to display the glory of God in this dark world, then the church must be made up of those who have been born again and have given a new heart, a heart that loves God, a heart that longs for holiness. Moreover, if the way the church builds itself up is by all of the members using their spiritual gifts, then that implies that all of the members have the Holy Spirit giving them spiritual gifts. If a church is made up of anybody, believers and unbelievers, well, then you can't have spiritual gifts operating in the church as you ought because many of the members don't have the Spirit at all. Okay, so but you get that. We know that. Church membership is to be made up of Christians. What we may not have thought about so much is the implication of that. What is the implication? The implication is that when we receive someone into church membership, what we are in effect doing is giving an affirmation to their profession of faith. 
that when someone comes and wants to be a part of us and enters into membership, we are affirming their profession of faith. We are declaring that as far as we can tell, as far as we can see, this person is a true born-again believer. And this is an essential and often overlooked point. To be granted church membership is to receive from that church that affirmation of faith. It is not an infallible affirmation. A congregation can be fully convinced that someone is truly a believer, only to find out later that they were gravely mistaken. Only God himself knows who those who are his with an infallible knowledge. But when we receive someone into the membership of our church, we are giving a testimony to the world and to that person that as far as we can tell, he or she is genuinely a new creature in Christ. Remember, the Pharisees came to John the Baptist for baptism. But John the Baptist knew enough about the Pharisees to know that they, did not, they had not truly repented. And so he told them, go away, I will not baptize you, go bear fruit right, of your repentance and then come back. And churches do the same thing. If a person comes to us for membership, and it's clear this person does not love Jesus, it's clear this person does not want to follow Jesus, it's clear this person has blatant sins in his or her life that he's not willing to give up to follow Jesus, we're not going to receive that person into membership because we don't want to affirm that somebody is okay with God when it's obvious that they're not okay with God. Now, why is this important? Well, we need to know this because it proves that admitting someone into membership is of great spiritual importance. Friends, people can be deceived about the state of their souls. It is not only possible, but I would suggest it is a fairly common occurrence for people to believe they are saved when in fact they are not. A person may have experienced something, They may have been persuaded that Jesus is in fact the Son of God. They may have had a moment when they felt great guilt for their sins. This person may have responded in an outward way to a a gospel invitation. But none of those things alone make a person a genuine Christian. And when this person comes to the church and asks to be made a member, he is in a sense asking for that church to receive him as one of them to receive him as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, as a fellow believer. And if the church does not take that responsibility seriously, that church might have a hand in giving this person a false assurance. False assurance is one of the devil's best tricks. Many of us know it. We work with people. We have family members. We have friends who think they are okay with God. They even have a sense of assurance that they are okay with God when you can look at their life in contrast to the Bible and see they don't really love Christ. He doesn't really have their heart. They're not really following Him. We don't want to be a part of what the devil is doing and helping to deceive people. Now, the flip side is the glorious side, right? The flip side is that when a church does take this seriously, when we do make sure that a person understands the gospel before they join, when we have taken time to get to know the person and we've seen evidences of grace in that person's life and then we receive that person into membership, 
We are giving them an affirmation of faith that can be such a comfort to their souls. Many believers, and especially younger believers or newer believers, struggle with doubt. Am I truly saved? Am I truly a Christian? And sometimes they fall on their face and they sin and they hate their sin, but they fall in again and the devil comes against them and starts saying, you're not really one of Christ. You're not really one of His. You're still as lost and going to hell as the rest of this dark world. There's no hope for you. What a wonderful thing to know. No. I have brothers and sisters in Christ who know me and they have received me as their own. They've seen evidences of grace in my life. That affirmation of faith can become a wonderful gift from Christ to bring help and strength and courage to the struggling believer. Does that make sense to everybody? I have more I could say, but I think I've covered. Does that make sense to everybody? Nod your head if you, if you agree. Okay. So number one, why is this important? It's important as an affirmation of faith. It's a wonderful gift from Christ. If you don't practice church membership, you lose it. It's a wonderful gift that's just gone. A gift purchased by the blood of Christ. Gone from the life of your church. And then second reason is that church membership, this is the second reason why it's important, church membership is a declaration of submission. Church membership is a declaration of submission. Folks, pride is our greatest enemy. Pride is, is the devil, the world, the flesh. They all have one aim. Cultivate pride in your life. It was pride that motivated the first sin in the garden. It is pride that is underneath all sin. Pride is what rips us out of communion with God. Pride is, the, uh, is what took us away from the presence of God in the beginning. God resists the proud. Pride will condemn us to hell. Pride is our great enemy. Humility is the opposite of pride. It's, it's a virtue. Pride is the vice. Humility is the virtue that we are to love. And when we become Christians, how do we become Christians? By humbling ourselves like little children. Setting aside our pride. Saying, I do not have what it takes to be right with God. I will not esteem myself. I will not follow my heart and think that somehow I'm going to make myself right with God. No, I'm going to humble myself and say, Jesus, you and you alone are my hope. I trust you. It is in humility that we receive salvation to begin with. And maturing as a Christian, becoming Christ-like, is to have Jesus' own humble and complete reliance on His Father developed in us. Sanctification is the process of learning how to deny ourselves, deny our pride, and find our joy in humbling ourselves and glorifying Jesus. Because God loves us, and because God wants to help us in this battle for humility, and in this battle to kill pride, He gives us this thing called submission, right? To submit literally means to put oneself under someone else, right? Sub means under, submarine, under the water, sub-zero, under zero. And so to submit to someone is to choose to practice self-denial, voluntarily humbling ourselves, purposefully wounding and weakening our pride for the glory of Jesus. God's commands to submit 
are a gracious and vital gift. They are a chief means of squashing that great enemy, pride in our lives, and helping us grow in holiness. Well, folks, church membership is such a gift because it develops the spirit of submission in our lives. When a person becomes a church member, that person is submitting himself or herself both to the church leaders, but also to the church body as a whole. A while ago we read Hebrews 13, 17 about uh, submitting to church leaders. Uh, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 13 says it this way. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. And so one reason that Christians are to join local churches is to place themselves in submission to those men raised up by God to care for their souls. Um, How do we submit to our pastors? Let me say, every time we get on this subject, I need to make clear. I so long for the day when we as a church will follow the biblical pattern of having multiple pastors plurality of eldership. Every Christian needs a pastor, even pastors need other pastors to pastor them. So anytime I ever get on the subject of of submitting to pastors and letting them care for us, I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me, because I hope someday soon I will have to submit myself and learn what it is to be cared for by a pastor, even as I seek to pastor. So I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me as well. Why should we submit to our pastors? How should we submit to our pastors? We should submit to their leadership. Uh, God calls leaders in a local church pastors, shepherds. And what is it that shepherds do? They lead the sheep. Uh, Some churches want pastors to be little more than, than chaplains who simply bring inspirational messages, but they don't actually get involved in the, the life of the church. It's very contradictory. To the teaching of Scripture, pastors are to be shepherds, leaders who call on churches to follow, not the pastor, but call on churches to follow the teaching of Christ, the chief shepherd. Um, Unless our pastors are leading us into sin, we should humble ourselves, think best of them, seek to follow them. We should submit to the teaching of our leaders. Uh, Scripture commands pastors to devote themselves primarily to the preaching of the Word, But folks, pastors devoting themselves to the teaching of the Word means nothing if the congregation is not going to submit themselves to listen and obey to that Word that comes from Christ. So we need to submit to the teaching of the leaders. And then third, we should submit to the counsel and to the correction that our leaders bring, uh, just as Christ guides us and disciplines us. So also pastors are called to, to help apply the glorious truths of God to the everyday issues of our lives. It's done in the pulpit. It's also done at times in church you know, pastor's offices and in living rooms and things like that. So, so one reason membership is important is it helps us kill pride in our lives by submitting ourselves to the care of pastors. But that's not all. Church membership is important because it kills pride as we submit ourselves to the body as a whole. Church membership means you submit yourself to the lives of others whom you've covenanted with. When you join a church, you're making a commitment to give yourself to the care of others in that church. 
And when others receive you into membership, they are making a commitment to care for you, to show love to you, to serve you. Folks, we need this. We need this. Lone Ranger Christianity is not Christianity. We are to be intimately involved in one another's lives. We are to have committed relationships to one another, filled with love. With membership, Christians learn humility, learn self-denial through submission to the body as a whole. So think about it this way. We're near the end. Think about this. We all have our preferences, right? We all have our preferences. In every local church, you will find people with different tastes in music, different tastes in teaching styles, different tastes in interior design, right? You will find people in churches have lots of different preferences. And we, we've all heard the stories of churches that split over the silliest things, the color of the carpet, right? We, we've all heard about those things. God has called us in a local church to live in peace with one another. And in order for us to live in peace with one another, we must all be willing to put aside our preferences for the sake of the body. So, for example, maybe there's a Christian member who really likes Christian rap music. Right? This person loves Christian rap music. Most of the other members of the church are not big fans of Christian rap music. They would certainly find it difficult to worship God through Christian rap music. What should this person do? Well, this person should feel free to listen to Christian rap music in his car, to listen to it in his home, but he should be willing to lay aside that preference when it comes to the corporate gatherings of the people, esteeming the body is more important than himself. He can listen to gospel gangsters or Toby Mac or someone like that, you know, Christian rap artists. He can listen to them on Saturday when he comes to the church as a whole, join in joyfully and singing holy, holy, holy with the rest of the body. And that's just one example. There are literally, this happens in millions of ways in the life of the local church, that we learn to submit ourselves to the body as a whole for their good. Some like more singing, some like less singing. Some wish the, the air was cooler, some wish it was warmer. Some wish meetings began an hour earlier, some wish they began an hour later. Some would prefer smaller Sunday school classes, some bigger Sunday school classes, and on and on and on we could go. Now, now by the way, I especially need to say this for any guests who are with us, this sermon is not coming out of anything I've been hearing from the church. I could boast in the grace of Christ all day long on you, Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church. This does not at all describe you. This is not a church where preferences often get thrown out in this way uh, upon one another. You must do things my way. No, that's just not been my experience for the last several years here. That's the grace of God. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to grow your pride. Right? Uh, this is the grace of God, uh, but I want you to see that in your life. But I hope you see how through church membership, our pride is killed. Through church membership, our, we learn self-denial as we begin to take co these commitments to the body seriously. It's through membership that we make this commitment, and then that commitment begins to give us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to deny self, to grow in humility, to put the needs of others before ourselves. All righty. Uh, there are many Christians who spend years hopping from church to church to church 
because they're trying to find a church that meets all of their preferences. And I've known people who ended up starting churches in their homes with three or four people, namely their own family, because they could not find a church that met all their preferences. That is not what church is about. Church is about joining with others for the sake of the glory of Christ and learning self-denial, learning humility, that we may better live for the glory of Christ. So that's bringing in a ton of biblical teaching into a very short, compact sermon. Here's the end. Um, Mount Hermon, let us take church membership seriously. If you're here this morning, you're a follower of Christ, you're not an active, committed church member, you, you need to be. Now, don't just join you know, immediately without taking time to be careful. There's things we could say about how to look well for a local church. But look, think about it carefully, pray through it, and then you need to join. Uh, it is an important means of grace. And then for us who are members of a church, members of this church, many of us, let us cherish this as a gift that came through Christ. Christ died to give us heaven. Christ died to give us communion with God as our Father. Christ died that we can die with joy knowing what awaits us. But among all these huge gifts that Christ died to give us is also this huge gift, the local church and all of the grace that we have within it. So let us praise God for it. Let us thank Christ for it. Let us receive it in faith. And may it be precious to us. Amen? Let's pray.